Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, America. Chuck Morse here from Boston, joined by my co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan, emanating from Los Angeles. Patrick, how are you? I'm, I'm pretty good. I am emanating away, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to, to the weekend. I'm also looking forward to today's show. It's, it's, a, it's a true Music Friday. We've got two uh, bands on today. A uh, great way to end the week and start the weekend. Right, great. And uh, just for, as a program note, I'm going to have to be on assignment in the second hour. So it's going to be you and you and our musician guest against the world, Patrick. <laughs> well, 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 I hope um, uh, Ray Ray Bonneville, who's the uh, musician in the second hour, and I are not going to be against the world. We'll be listening to the world. And of course, you're on assignment. Uh, you're on your way to your assignment now, which is just for our listeners, is why Chuck sounds like he's on a uh, remote uh, remote because he is on a remote. Right, exactly. And, and and we have a guest, I believe, the first hour. We do. We we have Benson Ramsey. Benson Ramsey is the front man and lead guitarist for the Pines. Great, Patrick. I wanted to just talk briefly again about the uh, Elizabeth Warren story. Yeah. And um, this isn't about Scott Brown. It's not about you know, whether or not he's a stooge of the oil companies and the banks or the corporations and a bunch of other capitalist roadsters. That's all true, but that's not the issue. I mean, you know, that's a separate conversation. The issue is with her, and the issue isn't even a political issue. She's a fine candidate. She represents her point of view very well, and people will decide that. And, by the way, I agree with some of her positions. I think it's a good idea to bring back the the Glass-Steagall Act, for example. The issue is more a social issue, and she violated two basic – well, she violated one tenet of politics that every politician knows not to do, and that is that she lied to the media. And you know, when, and when I say lied, I'm not talking about the kind of lying that politicians do and they're supposed to do, which is craft your image and emphasize the good news and not talk about the bad news. There, every politician does that. You're supposed to do that. I'm talking about a flat-out lie that – one can, the media, you know, when you do that to a reporter, and I learned this when I ran, I mean, I went to those seminars to learn how to run, to run for office, and that's the first thing I tell you. In fact, one of the seminars was run by Grover Norquist. Um, you know, because if you lie, the, the, the reporter's going to look into it, they're going to get documentation, and it's going to get worse and worse, and you're going to dig yourself in, and you're going to damage yourself, and you're going to damage your party. It's better to just admit it, and then move on, and hope that it, you know, it, it doesn't become worse. Well, she, when she was asked by a reporter about a story in the Boston Herald that indicated that she had referred to her ancestry in her application at Harvard or in her career at Harvard, because she was listed in the Harvard book as a Native American, she lied about that and said, no, I know nothing about that. Uh, I never said that. This is um, new to me. I mean, the whole thing, I didn't learn about it until I read about it in the Herald. 
and that set off an investigation. And it turned out that she had listed herself as a Native American, not just at Harvard, but at several other institutions, and that she was listed as a, quote, woman of color in a national intellectual article about diversity. So she had, you know, this had all happened. And she then went further question, and it turned out that her connections to being a Native American, not that it matters, is very tenuous. She is apparently one great, 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 great grandmother was allegedly a Native American, which even if that were true, means that she's 136 Native, uh, which Harvard has said, and apparently this National Diversity Committee has said does not qualify her as a Native American, which is interesting to me because I had no idea there was this diversity standard nationally. It's a very, I mean, I, it's a whole different subject that I, I, I need to look uh, into. Chuck, we have to take a break and, and welcome in our radio listeners. So we'll just uh, you, take a 30-second break and then pick this up afterwards. Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I would like to welcome aboard our affiliate stations WWPR AM in Tampa Bay, Florida, KFKQFM in Ashland, Oregon, Blog Talk Radio, and of course, Cyber Station USA Radio Network. Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick Monday through Friday. Chuck Morse here, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick, we're talking about the Elizabeth Warren uh, situation with, as the Boston Globe calls it, the questions of her ancestry. Um, and what, what happened here politically, the lie and then the why she lied. The, the issue further metastasized when she um, w- was asked about it and then she threw Harvard under the bus and said, well, this is all because Harvard did this. I guess she was figuring that Harvard would, would cover for her, you know, because she's a good liberal, who knows. But Harvard didn't. Harvard said, hey, wait a minute. No, she did tell us that she was a Native American. That's why we put it there. And so you have a situation where it's your word against Harvard's. And then they went on to say that she didn't qualify as a Native American under their diversity standards, which, again, is an interesting subject, how they come up with that, who knows. And so now she's been forced, as of yesterday, to admit that she did indeed list herself as a Native American, both at Harvard and at the University of Pennsylvania. So that's where the lie comes in. And then she goes on to say, but I'm very proud to be a Native American, which is fine, but if she's so proud of being a Native American, which she should be if she is, why did she lie? Why did she say, but I had nothing to do with this? I mean, that would be like my saying, I, I never said I was a Jew. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know who that, where you came up with that. I just learned about it from the newspapers. It's very strange. So it begs the question of why did she lie? You know, it's only- interesting. That that, yeah. that you bring up um, lying by politicians because uh, while uh, that was going on, uh, uh, former Governor Romney was standing in front of Solyndra, uh, claiming that the uh, the, the uh, Department of Energy's uh, general inspector general had investigated uh, the uh, grant to to Solyndra and found that it was a conflict of interest. And of course, about two hours later, the inspector general shot back and said, "No, I never said that. You're lying." And when uh, reporters asked him about that, he said, well, that's the way it goes. And these, of course, are the same reporters who pointed out that the first ad he ever run 
took the words of the president, uh, quoting uh, the uh, his his former, uh, uh, quoting John McCain, saying if they talk about the economy, we'll lose, and said that the president said that. And when he was called on by reporters, who said, you know, you're lying in your very first ad. He said, well, you know, that's just the way it goes. So. Uh, I'm not really impressed too much about this little thing that happened 20 years ago that Scott Brown is pulling up because he has nothing to say. He has no policies that anybody's particularly uh, interested in. He's a tool of Wall Street, and he wants to kind of deflect attention. When we've got the uh, the governor, the former governor, and the man who's running for president, uh, flat out lying to reporters, and then the reporters call him on it, he says, no, nah, it doesn't matter, you know, that's just the way it goes, and, and, and continues on to, to tell more lies. So... So if you want to bring up lying, uh, Chuck, this is a little tiny minor thing she did 20 years ago that Scott Brown is using to deflect attention away from the fact he has no policies and he has nothing to say to the people of Massachusetts they have pointed in. When your former governor and the Republican president is flat out lying about telling lies about the president, misconstruing the president's word, and then telling the press he really doesn't care, it's not a big deal. So I'm sorry, Chuck, I'm not impressed. Patrick, we could talk about lies by other politicians easily. We could talk about Obama's lies. But my issue is, again, to bring this back to the subject I want to talk about, not because of the lie itself, but because of the social implications of it. And this is a conversation that we could have today or it could take weeks, but I want to get to my point here. There's nothing to do with anyone else's lies, whether it be Obama or Romney. I don't care. I'm talking about this specific lie and why this is important. Now, the reason why this is significant from a, from a social standpoint, not a political standpoint, is because by her lying about her, her ethnic background to a reporter and blaming Harvard on this, it brings up the question of why would she lie about something like this, something so fundamental as her ethnic background or alleged ethnic background. And this is where the social import of this topic comes in. Um, the only plausible explanation for this kind of a lie is because she gained it by saying this. She, she got benefits through some sort, either through some sort of a direct affirmative action situation, which is possible because at the time she claimed to be a Native American, Harvard was looking to, quote, diversify their staff and, and were looking to bring people in. And according to Jay Severin, who is a fellow talk show host here, and I have no way of confirming this, he says that if you compare Elizabeth Warren's academic credentials and her background to other professors at Harvard, particularly other tenured professors, and this was when she was up in tenure that this came up, hers is pretty thin. So it brings up a fundamental social question, not just some politician lying. They all do that. This brings up the issue of, was it fair for her to check off a box saying that she was a minority and get benefits for that when it meant that someone else who was not a minority was denied the same benefits? And that's why she lied. It well, of course, both Harvard and Penn, and Penn have come out and they've said that no such benefits were ever done. She was not advanced for any reason because of that. So we've already put that to, we've already put that to bed. And incidentally, why didn't uh, when uh, Governor Romney was was busy uh, standing up in front of Solyndra yesterday? Why didn't he say anything about the two companies in uh, Massachusetts that he steered taxpayers' money for, to that were run by his former contributors? Who were, which then went bankrupt. It did the exact same thing that he was accusing the president of, only in his case it really was a conflict of interest. So if you want to talk about lies, let's talk about real lies by real candidates ex ex 
and not talk about mistakes made 20 years ago by by somebody who who got no benefits from them and who and who and who was told by the two universities who said publicly that she got no benefits from them that nothing actually happened as a result of that. Why don't we talk about the real lies that are being perpetrated in the American people by the Republican Party, which has become a circus of lies, as far as I'm concerned. So this, so this is a distraction. It's the only thing that uh, Scott Brown has to say. He has no policies. People are against his his shilling for Wall Street constantly. So he's trying to def- to deflect to deflect attention away from his lousy record and making up something that happened 20 years ago when she made a mistake, and she didn't really make a mistake. She's pointed out that this is the family lore. She'd been told this by her grandmother, and I frankly, I've been told it by my grandmother, too. I probably have a 132nd in it. So this is totally a distraction because there's nothing positive that can be said about, about Scott Walker. And if you keep on going on, I'm just going to keep on saying this. What is Scott Walker? We have to take a break because we're going to have a musician on in about one minute. Well, Patrick, I want to respond to that when we come back. Well, why don't you do it now? We'll, we'll wait till the, so okay. we don't interrupt once the again, music. Once again, this has nothing to do with lies by other politicians, whether they're lies or not, whether it be Obama and his background or whether it be Romney and his business dealings or anything else. Those are all things that you and I go over and should go over as a matter of routine. This has to do with a specific lie by Elizabeth Warren, not even in, the, in her political life, but in, in a social issue that resonates with people. And I want to talk about that, whether or not this is a problem for the society. This isn't just somebody claiming to do something. You know what I mean? This, is a, this gets to a much more social question. And if you think it's a trivial question, then that's fine with me. I would argue that the question of advancement through claims of minority status is more than a trivial question. It is a social question, no matter where you fall on it. And that's what, has, that's what is, you know, in a sense, striking a chord with people. I don't know if you know this, but the head of the, um, the Cherokee Nation was interviewed on this, the person that actually keeps records of real members of the tribe, and she expressed anger at Elizabeth Warren for making this claim, and she says this happens every so often. Because what it meant was that somebody who was a real genuine Cherokee, somebody who actually is registered with the tribe, might have missed out on an opportunity because someone else claimed this. So it is a social issue. This isn't just the usual politics where lies that go back and forth between both parties and between both candidates. It is a social issue, and I want to talk about that issue in the context of of, of Elizabeth Warren because her issue has brought this up. Okay, you've talked about it. We need to take a break, and we have a, a guest coming up. Okay. Thank you. 
are back. You're listening to Music Friday. This is the Friday edition of Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and uh, your host today is Chuck Morris, and we have a guest on the line, Chuck. Patrick, would you do the honors? I would, okay. Um, all week we have been playing music from our from our two guests. Uh, that are on on the two musicians that are on today, and one of those we're now very proud to uh, to bring with us. Uh, this is a band that comes out of the Midwest. It's a band that is extremely diverse, that can wrench your heart with its lyrics and can make your body jump with its rhythms. And we're very lucky to have with us today Benson Ramsey of the Pines. Benson, welcome to Music Friday. Hey, hello. Thanks for having me on. Um, we have been listening to your music. In fact, uh, when we uh, uh, went to a break, we, we listened to Cry, Cry, Crow. And uh, I just wanted to ask you, um, you all come out of the Midwest, but you would you say that your sound is a Midwestern sound? Uh, yeah, I would. I'd say it's Midwestern <laughs> if it's anything. Yeah. <laughs> right. and, and, and how would you character, characterize that? What do you do that's Midwestern? Well, I guess that's a good question. To me, it's just kind of, a, I guess, a, a feeling, you know, it's a sensitivity. It just kind of comes out of here. I think, you know, it's a, it's based on, like, you know, a lot of traditional music that's sort of been around, and then kind of whatever kind of seeps into the Midwest. Well, I, uh, I was looking at the... The lines, the lyrics for "Cry, Cry, Crow," and uh, mm-hmm. they're really kind of haunting. And maybe, you, and actually, we're just about to, to hear a little bit of "Cry, Cry, Crow." Let's uh, let's listen to. You start up like there's a feeling. It's, it's almost as if it's it's that time before a tornado. There's something yeah. heavy in the air. And then you talk about in the morning. I buckle my shoes like a pilgrim, and I make my way to the highway in a silhouette of silos. Cry, cry, crow. What does cry, cry, crow mean? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Just a feeling. It, do, am, I, am I catching it right that this this is the kind of feeling, the still heavy air that, that you feel before a tornado comes through? For sure. Is oh. that sort of lonely? Sort of a, a loneliness, I guess. And just sort of a... It's just, I don't know. It's all, it's so complicated, I think. Just those feelings of being out, out here in the Midwest, where your mind kind of goes. Sort of, the the cities have sort of grown so much, and everyone's kind of gone. Especially in the small towns out here. Well, let's listen to a few of those words. All right. Wow. 
you, the city like a beating heart on the table. I mean, that's just something that sticks in your mind. Right? Yeah. Uh, are, did you write those words? Yeah, I did. Uh, it, it just, you just can't uh, just can't put that out of your mind, uh, and, and I know what you mean because I've driven through Iowa. Uh, Chuck, are, are, can you hear this well? I know you're on assignment. Oh yeah, there. no, I, I hear it very well, and it's it's really beautiful uh, stuff. You know, it's real open space. You know, it's uh, it, it definitely captures something that's uh, you know it's very ethereal and it's uh, powerful and uh, poetic, and the recording quality is excellent. You convey it well, you know. It's it's great, and it's uh, it's also very good solid pop music as well. You know, it has a quality that's uh, commercial at the same time. Ah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you're on tour now, and uh, uh, I know did, that. Pardon me. Yep, we're just getting ready to head out on uh, tour. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're going to be at the Iowa Arts Festival tonight, and then it. Next Friday, you're going to be at Shank Hall, and then you're coming into Boston on June yeah. 12th. You're going to be at Cafe 939. Chuck, do you know Cafe 939? No, I don't, actually. Where is it? I haven't been out much lately, Doctor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to find out. For all our listeners, however, in New England, that's um, June 12th. It's Cafe 939 in uh, in Boston, and Cafe 939 um, is just a second here. I'll get the address for you, so everybody out there can can find out. Oh, I'm getting I'm getting an um, a note from uh, a, an email from one of our listeners saying it's one of the best places around. Wow! So apparently, you know, I, I think that your music Benson lends itself to a big world. You know, it's like a big sound, and uh, I don't know what uh, 939 is like, but uh, you know, I would I would hope that it is because it echoes and it's it's kind of um, it, it reminds you of an old-fashioned sort of arena sound, uh, you know, for some reason, I and mean, it's great. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we like. You remind me of your band reminds me of Emerson Lake and Palmer for some reason. I'm not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> well. I'm not sure either. Maybe there's some of that in there. <laughs> if it's on the radio out here, yep. then it probably is. <laughs> well, we got a note from one of our listeners saying Cafe 939 is um, on Boylston Avenue in Boston. Oh, okay, Boylston Street. Sure. Great. I think right. it might have used to, used to be the Jazz Workshop. No, that's that's true. I haven't been there in years. Tremendous. Good place. Another. Let's take a, a listen to All the While, which is another another song that just evokes so much imagery. Guys, must uh, 
You might, guys must spend a lot of time on the road. On the road. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad loneliness. No, uh, well, you, you write later on in that song. You sing later on that you've got a silver arrow buried in your chest. Where did that silver arrow come from? I wish I knew. I'm just, I don't know. <laughs> well, it's it's extremely evocative, and and again, it has that 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 you, you really do capture the outdoor feeling, the the big, the wide open space feeling. I sure am, and it's cool. Excellent. Nice chimes in there, too. Um, uh, how do you actually do this gig uh, live? I mean, do you, you know, literally, how do you do this? I mean, how do you make that sound happen in a live format? That's... Uh, well, that's what we're going to be doing on tour. It's, it's going to be very similar to the recording. We'll have the a group of guys, and um, we get pretty close. You know, yeah. we don't, you know, we don't report, approach recordings too much like that it's set in stone or anything, but, uh, sure. uh, but I mean, how do you actually, some of those sounds sound very synthesized and, and, um, I mean, do you actually, are you, are you able to do that live? I mean, and, and, and convey that? It's just, I mean, I'm actually, I'm asking this more as a technical, uh, uh question. Yeah, there's, it, you know, we're not afraid of digital, you know. It all—it's all, it's all sure. kind of acoustic meets digital. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's all—it's all produced, you know. It's all played. There's not a lot of trickery or anything. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, there's you know some keyboards and you know uh, mm-hmm. a lot of you know uh, guitars, you know electric guitar, a little a little bit. Yes. It's pretty simple if you get down to it. But uh, now, now Benson, what do you, do you are you the uh, guitarist in the band? What do you play? I play guitar. Yep. Yep. I, I play electric guitar and stuff. Yeah. And you're uh, the songwriter too, aren't you? Uh, me and uh, the other guy, David, we we uh, split the songwriting. We work on them together. Mm-hmm. How did you get started in music? Well, I grew up. Uh, out here um, in a pretty musical family so it was always just it was pretty much the norm Um, my dad is a guitar player and songwriter and he plays with a songwriter named Greg Brown and uh, so it was just kind of the norm I just grew up grew up around it Um, did you ever perform with your dad? uh, yeah um, probably well, tonight we got a hometown show in Iowa City, and uh, you know it's not not very often, but he always works on the records with us, and he, you know, songwriting has always been a big topic of discussion, and it's, we're very uh, um, so we do play from time to time when we can. 
there's there's what seven of you in the band is that right yeah when we're all together i mean to create like kind of bring the songs to life recording wise um yeah it stems around me and david and my brother plays keyboards and piano and then and then we have drums and bass and a banjo player and another guitar player um well how how do you manage that seven people touring them must must be a lot of schedules to bring together do, do you you all have a manager who does that for you uh we do have a manager yeah out of boston and uh but it works like we 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 do, we've always done we always like to do different configurations so it's not always all of us we we much we very really much like to play with different instrumentation a lot of the times just because it it changes so much and it's and it how we play and the songs and it keeps it really interesting but uh it'll be the group when we come out on when we go on tour but everyone loves to do it we all it's like a little gang so <laughs> Well, well, I understand that you and uh, uh, David Huckfelt uh, actually began the the original musical partnership in Arizona. That you both lived in a barrio there and began playing together. How did the two of you wind up from the Midwest into Arizona? Um, well, it was around that time where you know we were in college. We were both separate at that point, but where it was just the kind of the call that. Um, kind of find, you know, like songwriting and all that and Tucson just seemed about as far away from Iowa as you could get. Um, and it just seemed like a good place to kind of go and kind of like get an objective view on things. And so it was just sort of a leap of faith kind of move out there. Um, well, that's a change of scenery, yeah. That's certainly a leap of faith. Um, yeah. I just wonder, uh, did it have anything to do with the, the, the what you express in this song, Rise Up and Be Lonely? I would say so, absolutely. Right. <laughs> it's probably... Exactly, it's just about taking that... Whose words these are? Uh, just standing out and kind of following your gut. Let's listen a little bit to Rise Up and Be Lonely. With a broken little treaty, it holds the proof. Now it's no blind man, it's on the plane. And I claim a fool of pure strength. Well, you don't need many words to speak the truth. I have to admit, have you ever done any writing besides songwriting? Uh, no, not seriously. But, uh, you have a, a knack for poetry, and, and the band has a knack for for taking your your uh, deep sense of melancholy and space and loneliness and putting it into a musical tapestry that evokes that. But but your your poetry is. Uh, just devoid of the music is uh, remarkable. It's really uh, 
you, you ought to think about that at some point. I don't want to check. Am I going overboard here? Not at all, Patrick. It's very, the lyrics are tremendous. They caption it. They match the music well, and, uh, you know, it's um, powerful stuff. Um, who, um, what is your demographic in terms of your listenership, Benson? Do you have any idea? Um, well, it's always kind of changing, I feel like, you know, because we, we're on Red House Records, which is pretty, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say folky, you know, or mm-hmm. whatever. And so, I mean, that was a huge part of when we started was, like, people like Spider John Kerner were, yep. like, just there. And, like, those old folk songs were, you know, so great, and they're so mysterious and still relevant. And so that was, like, really inspiring. And then and then it's just we try to be more and more honest and incorporate where we are in these times, you know, and, uh, you know, and just pop music and whatever that you hear all around right. you. And so it, I guess to answer your question, it kind of seems all over the place. There's high school kids and people that grew up, you know, in the 60s listening to all that kind of music and then folkies and it's, it's all over mm-hmm. the map. And then, right, right. Now, I want to ask you the question that I ask all musicians, and I, I ask it because I, I'm fascinated by how musicians, and I admire how musicians sustain themselves, and that is how do you make your money? How do we make your money? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we play, you know, play a lot of shows, and um, that's, that's really when it comes down to I mean, it's not, we're not uh, in it for the money. No, but you have to support yourself, and I, I admire the fact that you, I, I like to see a musician who's able to be, you know, who knows that they can, they they need to make it into a business so that they can support themselves over the long term. So you, you make you, the, the majority of your money comes from your performances. That's great. Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, it's a labor of love, and we're kind sure. of workaholics. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, we approach it like a be honest like I think about I you know your part in the world you play your part in the world I think about a doctor spends 15 hours a day at work saving lives like I'm I'm I don't do that I try to do songs but I try to work just as hard as someone that's adding something you know to society or in that we try to approach it very seriously and try to connect with people or and add, you know, art to people's lives, if that makes any sense. No, I think, and I think it's just as, it's a very valuable contribution. And the the reason that I'm interested in the, the business question is because I'm fascinated by someone who can do something that is an, that is both an art and, a, and an act of love and, you know, a, an inspiration and a mission and support themselves. I mean, that to me is the ultimate. And do it yeah. so well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you've got a, a couple of fascinating tour dates coming up. Uh, one, you're going to be at the uh, the Minnesota Zoo. You're going to be joined by uh, Lucy Michelle and the Velvet Lapels Saturday, June 23rd. You're going to be part of the 20th anniversary of Music in the Zoo. Have you played the Minnesota Zoo before? Uh, we have opened. We opened up there for Mary Chapin Carpenter. Wow. Um, oh, great. Uh, like maybe two years ago, 
So, yeah, we played there one other time, and well, this would be great. This would be our show. It's a big show for us, and we're really looking forward to it. The zoo will be a nice outdoor venue. And, of course, you'll have animals around you, too, probably. Yeah, a lot of animals and birds. Well, I want to tell all of our listeners that um, uh, you can find a full list of the tour, the tour you're on right now, at www.thepinesmusic.com. And while you're at thepinesmusic.com, you can also see the lyrics, these fabulous lyrics that I've been gushing about. Uh, there's also a great photo gallery, and there's a store where, where you can pick up um, a copy of, th- of this particular album, which is Dark Soul Gold, and also uh, other songs. And you also are on iTunes, too, I know. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's www.thepinesmusic.com. And, that's, uh, and, and take a look at the tour dates there. Well, listen, a little bit more of Rise Up and Be Lonely, and uh, then we're going to move on to another ethereal piece of yours, The Chimes. All right. Marshall, maybe the old Fenders, 
what do you what do you use there? Uh, a number of different things. Yeah, old Fender amps. Uh, and yeah, we use uh, tube amps. And it also sounds of, like your organ, your 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 keyboard sounds sounds like an old fashioned Farfisa type sound. <laughs> in a way. Yeah, we use some analog, you know, synthesizers. Nice. Yeah. Uh, th- this is something I've never understood, and, and I, from time to time we've had uh, listeners ask us about this. What exactly is the difference in sound between using tubes, which from the 1950s, and uh, solid-state uh, amplifiers? Well, uh, it's just a tone issue, really. Uh, the tubes tend to have more depth, and they have a kind of more depth and more air to them. It's a, and you can just, you can feel it if you listen to them side by side. A lot of it is like kind of felt, but it's just a richer, richer, uh, it's more, it has more like, uh, more color and it's deeper. So it does, uh, in the same way that vinyl also has something that uh, digital recording doesn't have. And, And also the tube sound is very indicative of the 1960s. It wasn't just the 50s. Exactly. It's just it's yeah. not it's not perfect. Well, that's why it's great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mike from the Midwest just uh, emailed us and said that uh, you guys and your music rocks, and he's looking forward to seeing at least mm-hmm. one show in the Midwest. He's going to check out as many as he can. So you got some fans out there listening to us. Oh, that's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. All right, let's. Uh, the, 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 you kind of you kind of shift gears a little bit with another piece called Chimes, and uh, I've I've just fascinated by this piece of music too. It, it you've gone from the wide open spaces and that sense of loneliness to to almost um um almost a little bit pop sound here. Yeah. Is this your writing? Uh, this is David and I work. David and I co-wrote this one together, actually. Is that you singing? Oh, that's David singing, man. David singing. Let's take a listen to that. Yeah, that was one of those tracks that, you know, 
It just felt, felt good. It sort of lifts up the record a little bit. It, it does. Jack, any thoughts? Yeah, I'm here. Excellent. It's, uh, it moves. It has like, that great kind of American sound. You guys capture that. Well, we're just about out of time, so we're going to... Dan, let people know where they can get your music. What's that? Let people know where they can get your music, where they can find out more about you. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the the internet's always a good place. The iTunes and Amazon. Hopefully, your independent, your local record store. Uh, you could probably order it if they don't have it. And next month, it'll be coming out on vinyl, the new record. So that'll be something to look out for if you like that. And of course, thanks uh, so much. Our listeners should always go to www.thepinesmusic.com, and there they can get your whole tour schedule, pictures, lyrics to the music. Uh, they can buy um, buy music in your store, and uh, just just track track you completely. See your whole life spread out before them on www.thepinesmusic.com. Well, well, Benson, this has been uh, this has been wonderful. I love your music. It's going to be ringing in my head all day, and your lines are going to be bouncing around, particularly that line about uh, a city like a uh, a heart on a table. So, thank you for being with us today. Thanks you so much for having me on. Thank you. Yeah, take, take care. And we'll all right, take to... care. All right, goodbye. And I think we're going to go out with a little bit of cry, cry, crow before we take a break. I love this feeling, Chuck. It, it really feels like the heavy air before a, a tornado. I mean, it's just like yeah, this way. That sense of oncoming something. These guys are really fabulous artists. Does it with a tremolo bar, or does it by you know by wiggling his fingers? And, you know, wow, the, and the it is so evocative. This is a kind of music that doesn't go away. Well, we're going to take a break. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. It's like the Dentures used to do that very well. Yeah, they did. Uh, and once again, for our listeners, this is music from the Pines. You're listening to Cry Cry Crow. You can follow the Pines on www.thepinesmusic.com. They are on tour. They're on tour in the Midwest, and they're on tour. They're going to be coming to uh, Boston and the East Coast. So go to their website, check out their tour, and check out their music. This is some of the best music I have ever heard. It really evokes something. And we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. Cry, cry, cry. 
again, that was Cry, Cry, Crow from the Pines, and we've just uh, interviewed uh, uh, the lead guitarist of the Pines, the man who's making those wonderful, wonderful sounds on his guitar with uh, something that Chuck tells me is a tremolo bar. Being a, a guitar idiot, I don't know anything about that, but it sure sounds good. That was Vincent Ramsey. You can get their music at www.thepinesmusic.com. And incidentally, this segment is brought to you by... Barton Publishing. By Barton Publishing. Thank you, Patrick. Barton Publishing. Uh, Check out Barton Publishing on our website, of course, and uh, it's uh, various uh, health uh, publications dealing with all sorts of ailments uh, or situations, whether it be acid reflux, smoking, for that matter. I think there's something. I even think he's got something up there on baldness, Patrick, (laughs) if I'm not mistaken, (laughs) which is something I should look at, right? I mean, my, my comb over gets bigger all the time. No, um, you know, I'm not going to step pra- in that one. <laughs> okay. Practical information that uh, basically helps you get healthier and get a better alignment in your, in your body by use of regular food and, think, you know, just emphasizing certain things that you didn't know about. And, again, we're not talking here about exotic uh, Chinese herbs or, or health or expensive uh, macrobiotic food or health food. We're talking about ordinary food you buy in the supermarket that you might already sometimes get, but if you have it under in certain contexts and certain uh, amounts over time, it can improve your health. You can even manage things like cancer. Not that it cures it, it doesn't, but it helps you get healthier, helps you, you know, be stronger and more and live longer, hopefully, and, and be more vibrant. So it's information that oftentimes the big drug companies don't want you to know about because it doesn't cost anything and they'd rather sell you an expensive drug. Not that there's anything wrong necessarily with that also. I'm not saying I'm not some health food nut here. You know, you have to make your a wise consumer gets all the information they can from all sides. But it just makes you more informed. And these booklets are very inexpensive. If you go to the website and take a look at the various booklets that Joe Barton is Offering and you put it and you decide to buy one of them, and you buy it off of our website, which is fairnessradio.com. You put in the code word fairness and you get it at half price. It's already pretty inexpensive, so we're talking about getting a booklet for like ten bucks or something like that. So I urge people to check it out. Barton Publishing. We have a um, uh, an email here who uh, who said wear a hat. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. I mean, it's very practical things. And, and another suggestion is shave your head, wear a gold earring, and look like a pirate. Well, that's, you know, sometimes if you're, bald, if you're getting so bald that you, you're, beyond, uh, you're beyond help, some guys do that. <laughs> you look, you know, it makes you look better, makes you look younger than, than you look if you have like a ring, you know, going around the side. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm there yet, Patrick. Uh, no, I wasn't suggesting that at all. I was just looking at the email coming in. And, uh, Although I think I'd look ridiculous, completely shaved head. I mean, that's not going to be me. Well, it, the gold earring is what makes it work. Well, I know people have done that. I mean, it's, it works for some people, and some people it doesn't, you know? Yeah. Uh, it also helps <laughs> if you have a big, a, a big mustache and you're six feet tall, which neither of us are. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm I'm still kind of vibrating from uh, the Pines. Uh, I expect that that's a band that's going to go a long way. Yeah, I think they're doing. They're, they should do very well. You know, I mean, it's good good music. But Patrick, we have to get yeah. back to the hardcore political stuff. Oh darn! I know it's annoying, <laughs> and you know, we, you and I, are going to be spending between now and election documenting lies on both sides. 
I mean, my approach to it is a little less ideological than yours. I recognize that both sides are going to lie or exaggerate. Uh, I don't think that, for example, I wouldn't say the Democratic Party is a party of lies. You know, that's one of the reasons I avoid issues like the birther issue. I just don't like that kind of politics. It's too destructive. It's too ugly. I would rather focus on specific issues and specific lies, as you, as it were, and to the look at them in terms of their magnitude and, and uh, you know, analyze them, not get into these sweeping comments like the, Democ- the Republican Party is all lies and that kind of stuff. That, that, it, it actually, I, I think, uh, is kind of productive to, to your partisan side to, to do that. It, uh, it, it comes across as not just shrill but as highly ideological, and it, it results in a loss of uh, credibility. But uh, the issue I was talking about was Elizabeth Warren's lie, and it's not because it's a lie per se, but it's because of the social issues that are being brought up by it, and that uh, those are interesting to me. The whole issue of people taking advantage of affirmative action, which is what seems to have happened here. Now, you say that Harvard and uh, UPenn have said, no, she didn't get any advantages. I haven't seen that. I'm not sure that's true or not. I don't know if it will, anybody can really say that. But what we know is that she has a pattern of listing herself in various settings as Native American and then in other settings as white. And, it, it, and given the fact that she's very ambitious, it does bring up questions of whether or not what, what were her motivations at different times for declaring herself as such. And uh, it brings up four basic fairness questions. You know, this is the fairness radio, Patrick, and uh, it makes people wonder, is it fair and is it right for her to have done that? I mean, it's that simple. It brings up a bigger question. How many people are using those sort of designations to take advantage and to get benefits that they really shouldn't get? And that strikes deep. I think it's not an ideological issue. Liberal, conservative, left, right, it has nothing to do with whether or not we should have affirmative action. I think that's a reasonable discussion. People can differ. But whether we have it or not, I think everyone understands that it, if, even if they agree with it, that it's a necessary evil because it discriminates against people who otherwise might deserve a, a position and who aren't getting it because they're not of the right race. And that's why people are upset about it. Well, that's why you're upset about it. I'm not. You don't. Uh, you don't think that's an issue at all, Patrick? No, no, not really. Uh, okay, first of all, well, it let, didn't let me... happen. She, she didn't. Uh, as she, as she told uh, the Boston Globe and, and other news outlets that she, she was quite clear to the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard uh, that uh, she checked that box. That that's what her family had been telling her ever since that she was uh, a child. That was completely true uh, on her part, and they've said that she didn't get any kind of special benefits from it. And uh, this, to me, this is just a distraction. Uh, put up by a candidate that has nothing else to say. And Patrick, I'm, I'm first of all, we're talking about the issue with, again. You know? Scott Brown, by the way, has nothing to do with this. He didn't put this out. Oh, oh this really? Was, oh, yeah, this really. Come from his ops research. Give no, it didn't. No, actually, it didn't. It, this is something that was uncovered by Jessica Haslam, who's a reporter at the Boston Herald. It has nothing to do with him. This is her issue. Now, he's talked about it, and I don't think he should, because I think he should let other people talk about it. He's actually but lied this, about it. He called her, her parents liars, and she fired back well, fine. And, that and, one today. And, and, he shouldn't, and he shouldn't be talking about it. That's a mistake. But this has nothing to do with him. I'm not interested in what he's saying. Well, I'm interested have, in the, we the have issue itself. Seconds. All right. I'm interested in the issue itself. 
and you say that it's not a problem for people to use affirmative action, and I don't think it's so clear whether she did or not. She didn't use affirmative action. Well, I'm not sure that that's so clear. And also, why did she list herself as white in other locations where she was working or, or, or applying for jobs? It's just that's a question that should be answered. But it brings up a more sensitive issue, which it's is the fact that we're out of time at the end of the hour. Okay. All right. Um, I'm, I will see about calling in for the second hour, Patrick. Again, I'm, I'm out here at a hospital right now, so I don't know if I can. Um, okay. If not, then I'll talk to you Monday. Okay. And, we'll, and I'd like to pick this up then. Well, I hope everything goes well at the hospital. Thank you. Okay. So this isn't anything with me, Pat, by the way, so just people know. Okay. All right, Patrick. Uh, take care, and uh, I'll talk to you Monday. Okay. Have a good weekend. You too. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates, and we'll be right back with more music and with Jeffrey Lean from London. And we want to hear from you. 
You can call us, 424-675-6806, or you can send us an email. We've had some emails already at to fairnessradio at gmail.com. That's fairnessradio at gmail.com. Fairness Radio is all one word. And in the, the meantime, I want you to know that we're, broadca- we're broadcasting, sponsored by Barton Publishing, bartonpublishing.com, your source of information to manage your health and your body your way naturally. Barton Publishing provides you with information. They don't sell pills and they don't sell cures. Not, you're not going to walk away and say, my cancer is cured. What they do give you is information that you can use to manage your body, and including things that go wrong with your body. And if you go to our website, www.fairnessradio.com, and there's a little button there. It's actually it's a big square box you can push with Barton Publishing on it. That will take you immediately to their website. And if you order anything, put fairness in the coupon box, and you get an immediate, an immediate 50% discount. And that's, uh, that makes things even doubly cheap because most of the information packets that you get from Barton Publishing are 19.95. With uh, the fairness coupon, uh, fairness in the coupon code, you get it for 9.95. That's less than many people pay for a single pill. So that's Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com. Well, we just uh, interviewed um, uh, Benson Ramsey of the the Pines, and today, of course, is Music Friday. We do this on Fridays. You know, we we talk about politics and religion all week. Sometimes it gets heated. Uh, we interview guests from all various sides uh, on various political questions and religious questions, and and sometimes we just like to relax. You know, we've got the weekend coming up. It's going to be a lot easier. Well, it's not. It's going to be a pretty powerful weekend, a pretty busy weekend in a lot of places because we have the uh, the Scott Brown recall election coming up next week. I believe that's that's uh, early in the week, and of course we're going to be talking about that um, after the fact, and uh, I'm sure that there are many of you out there who are going to be volunteering on one side or the other, making phone calls. If you're one of our Wisconsin listeners, you're going to be out there knocking on doors. This is turning out to be one of the most expensive elections in Wisconsin history. More money has been spent on this election, on this one single election, that have been spent on all the elections in uh, in, in past. Uh, that is on all seats up for election in past uh, Wisconsin elections. As of now, I saw a uh, report this morning that said that uh, between 18 and 20 million dollars worth of TV times have been bought by various um, uh, super PACs uh, supporting um, um, Governor uh, Scott Walker. 18 to 20 million dollars. That that for a for Wisconsin, which is now one of the major media markets, that is phenomenal. Four million to six million have been spent by uh, the campaign uh, for uh, uh, Mayor Barnett, who's running against uh, Scott Walker. So altogether, at least twenty-two million dollars have been spent up until now. In fact, I was talking to somebody in Wisconsin who said they don't watch television anymore. <laughs> they just don't watch television anymore. He said because of the ads. And another person I I, I talked to said. The, the, that they every day they kneel down and say thank you Lord for the remote and especially for the uh, the button on the remote that turns off the sound because it's wall to wall you cannot turn on any television even some some little tiny micro cable channel uh, on um, in Wisconsin now without getting wall to wall television commercials 
And you know, there's some uh, there's some doubt, and we're going to look into this as to whether or not all that money actually does any good. Uh, we have noticed that in California that it doesn't. We're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, we're going to have our our stations will be with us, and also we're going to be uh, uh, with Jeffrey Lean, our environmental correspondent from London. Stay tuned. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and on our radio affiliates. Where the water circles back around I thought I saw you, the sun go low In a long, long That's River John We're gonna, By Ray Bonneville, we're going to be talking to Ray Bonneville At, at 2.30 today, 2.30 Eastern When we become uh, Music Friday again But right now I want to... Uh, Welcome our radio listeners in from Cyber Station USA and Blog Talk Radio. It's Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. And I want to welcome our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR Tampa Bay, Florida, which is going to be the site of the Republican National Convention, and also KSKQ-FM in Ashland, Oregon, which is the site of the best Shakespeare festival in the country. If you're in that part of the, the country, the Pacific Northwest, stop in and catch some great Shakespeare this summer. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in California. I'm usually co-hosting with Chuck Morris in Boston, but Chuck is... Uh, uh, on assignment today, and uh, he'll be back with us Monday, but we'd like to have you with us. You can join us at uh, fairnessradio at gmail.com, and don't forget you can also call in 424-675-6806. Well, it's Friday, and that means Jeffrey Lean must be with us. Jeffrey is the uh, environmental columnist for the London Daily Telegraph, among many, many other things, and he's calling in from London. Hi, Jeffrey. Hi, Patrick. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm 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 very good. We've been doing music today. You know, we we do that every now and then, and mm. Um, mm. It, you know, it, it, it's nice just to take a break from politics <laughs> occasionally. But Indeed. We well, I, I I'm in literary today. I'm at the Daily Telegraph's Hay Festival in Wales, which is England's main literary festival or Britain's main literary festival. Um, it always rains. It's raining here now at the moment. Um, <laughs> Three things being on the rain in Britain. One is Wimbledon, the second one is a declaration of drought, and the third one is the first day of the Hay Festival. Never fails. Um, <laughs> but I'm here, and there are authors, some, you know, top authors from all over the world are here, and 30,000 people over the, over the next week will come to this soggy field in Wales to talk about ideas. It's really a very encouraging thing. And authors really let their hair down and um, talk very personally. It's got an extraordinary atmosphere. Well, uh, when you say you're, you're in a foggy field, are you anywhere near the, the big castle in uh, in Wales, in the capital of Wales? Cardiff? Oh, it's a, well, it's a way away from Cardiff. Um, I guess um hour or two's drive from Cardiff. Um, okay. We're actually slap bang on the Welsh, um, on the Welsh English border, hey, is. Um, so um, we're just a foothold inside Wales. Well, for for our listeners who've never been to Wales, it, it is a marvelous trip. Um, in, in addition to to having a language that I don't think has any vowels in it, um, it is a um, has rocky coasts and wonderful castles, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I kind of envy you for being there. Well, 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 Jeffrey, you wrote an interesting piece about aging, 
this week. Can you yeah. want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, there's a study being done on why, what sort of people live longest. And you might think it was sort of the ornery and difficult people who well put other people aside and put number one first. Uh, but actually, it's come out with something quite opposite. Now, this research has been done at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine at, at Yeshiva University. It's in the Bronx, I gather. It looked at 243 centenarians, even which more than 100, and my Ashkenazi Jews, who are a very homogenous community, so you can pick up differences very easily scientifically. And they've found that the people who, um, who live longest were um, people who um, had a really positive attitude towards life, who were outgoing, optimistic, easygoing, laughed a lot, had a big social network, were conscientious and expressed emotions, rather than bustling the last. So, you know, when the cynics say, nice guys finish last, well, they're probably right, but in a slightly different way than they expected. <laughs> right. Well, ho- hopefully we all get a chance to, to laugh long. Uh, I, you know, I've I've seen that in many other places. In fact, uh, we had a magazine here in the United States. I think we still have it called the Reader's Digest. Oh, yes, indeed. Laughs is the best medicine. Laughter is the best medicine. That's right, and which is uh, something I'm Mine sure. Mine always are, very unfunny. Their jokes under the laughter's best medicine. Their jokes under the laughter's best the best medicine always seem to be very unfunny to me. But there we are. Well, you have to be an American, you know. Oh, that's true. Different sense of humor, of course, and. Uh, Divided by a common language, don't they say? Uh, and and we, we frequently have been divided by that common language. Well, getting to things that are more serious, um, I'd like to ask you a question, because I know you've asked it, and that's who speaks for wildlife? Well, that's a good question. I mean, and in Britain, there's, um, we've got some problems. I mean, the, our government, which is a coalition, should therefore be fairly sort of open to outside ideas, has really begun to crack down on the advisory bodies, um, saying they mustn't disagree with it. And these are bodies who are set up under statute to give it honest advice. And I was a bit upset because one of the men here at, um, on the panel I was attending here yesterday at the Hay Festival was our main wildlife watchdog, the man who heads English nature, a farmer called, I'm uh, sorry, called Natural England now, called Paul Christensen. And he was saying that Britain's, Middle England's going to get over its aversion to GM crops and to, um, large-scale farms. Uh, but, you know, this is quite a change of tone for English nature, for natural England. They, they were the people who really uh, put the kibosh on growing GM in Britain because they, they forced the government to conduct trials which showed that GM, growing GM is actually worse for wildlife than conventional farming. And also in Britain, you know, we've got this lovely landscape of hedges and everything. It's very wildlife-rich. And the move to bigger prairie-style farms has really not made a part and really not wildlife a part. So we've got birds like the corn bunting, for example, which has declined by 85% over the last few years. So I was a bit upset to see him say that, because his job really is to be a watchdog. These things may be happening, and the next time GM may be better than the last lot. But his job is to really scrutinize and not to suffer not public opinion on the behalf of the agricultural lobby. That's somebody else's job. So I've had a bash at that. Well, in the United States, you know, we have a, um, uh, a legal term called standing, and uh, yeah. standing means that you have the the court will recognize that you that a person or an organization uh, represents the cause it's taking to courts. And many years ago, there was a book um, written and I uh, published that I whose author I forget called "Do Trees Have Standing?" 
because there was a concerted effort by the anti-environmental forces to convince the courts that uh, no one speaks for the wildlife and no one speaks for the wilderness, that the wilderness and wildlife and nature doesn't have standing in front of the courts, that you have to come up with a reason why human Mm. beings are interested, that uh, nature doesn't, uh, doesn't have the right to exist on its own. And right. I don't know if that, those questions have come up in England, have they? Uh, not quite in the same way, because we're much less legalistic society than you are. Uh, you know, much fewer things. That, we don't have a written constitution, so a lot less is decided in the courts than in the states. Where, um, you know, it's just a different kind of business. But um, these guys are statutory advisors, these bodies, like Natural England. So what they say counts when um, um, on... Um, you know, particularly when government has to take advice and the like, and when things go to public inquiry. So it's important that they, they stand out. In the past, they always have. But I am worried, as well as our Stalinist approach to the government, and I've called it Stalinist the ministers' faces, is, um, is possibly diminishing the power of these watchdogs. And these watchdogs have got to bark a lot and occasionally bite um, if the house is to be kept safe. Oh, we have we have an email here, and and the email says, uh, and, and and this is from um, Chauncey Change, which I probably not the real name at Yahoo.com. And Chauncey wants wants to know. You mentioned GM foods. I know that mm-hmm. Europe outlaws GM foods. Is there any research in Europe that says why they outlaw GM foods? We're beginning to see some in the United States that indicates they're dangerous. Well, there are two things. GM foods are two questions. One is ecological, and the other is health. Uh, uh, we let's, should tell our we should tell our listeners that by GM we mean genetically modified. Go ahead. Yeah. Now the uh, let's deal with the health one first. The trouble with the, on the health side, there are just no very very few good studies done by independent people. Um, there's a lot of work done by the industry which says things are all right, but a lot of it is not properly peer reviewed, and there's very little independent stuff. So we just don't know. Uh, I mean, these foods get waved through by regulators, but the evidence isn't there to say that they are they are entirely safe. They may be, they may well be, but there are a few little studies around that suggest there may be question marks on them. Now, the question is, we just don't know, but it would be a good thing to know. And you know, I think the studies the studies should be done. And I don't know why the authorities have not done the studies if they've got anything to hide. So that one is an open question. On the ecological side, it is not such an open question. And there is definitely a trade-off. If you're going to have GM food uh, and crops, they are going to spread their genes into other crops. They are super weeds will be created, and there are many of them now in the United States that are resistant to herbicides and the like, uh, because they've taken genes from crops that are bred to resistant to herbicides. And, um, and also, other crops, conventional crops and organic crops, are also receive what's called contamination from GM. I mean, that's just the technical word that's used. So people have less of a choice. So, um, you know, what people always... So it, there is definitely an environmental loss, trade-off if you have it, and there might be, we don't know, a health effect which needs looking into. Um, uh, what really happened here was, I think, that in Europe, and particularly in Britain, people felt there was just no public benefit in, these, in the ones that were being put out at the time. I mean, the main one being put out were, were, um, were crops that had been genetically modified to withstand uh, weed killers produced by the same companies that produced the crops. 
So you could then spray the whole field, including the crops, and the crops wouldn't die. Um, now, this was hugely in the but they were only modified to protect, to be resistant to that company's weakers. Without your weaker, you're going to use your crops and die. So this greatly increased, there's lots of market in for buying Monsanto, for example, as weed killer, and was hugely beneficial, for, for, beneficial to the um, company's bottom line. But what was the public benefit in that? It was very hard to spot. So people took a fairly shrewd um, look at the costs and benefits and decided there was nothing in this for them. So, you know, if there was any possibility of a risk, why the hell should they eat it? So that was the, that's what happened in Europe. Well, uh, we've just got another email in, uh, which backs up a little what you say. It's, it's uh, the emailer gives, sent me to a website and put a quote on it. And uh, <clears throat> it was Monsanto's website, which states, <clears throat> there is no need for or value in testing the safety of GM foods in humans. That's a very good quote. And never spotted that. Would you, would you forward that to me? I will do so. It's uh, it, it was, uh, it's in actually the Atlantic Monthly did a whole piece on it according to to the the emailer I have and I can forward that to you. But uh, the, the emailer goes on to say there's been a recent study that showed that the uh, the genes that are inserted into soybeans to make them resistant to uh, pesticides are also absorbed by the bacteria in your body and they yeah I've seen, I've seen that and, and yeah. they said that could never happen. They said that could never happen. Um, well, you know, the great study in Britain is by Penacord Arpad Pushtai, who was an enthusiast for GM crops, and he um, he fed GM foods to um, to rats, and lots of things happened to the rats. Um, when he went on television, he was encouraged by his um, institute to go on television, institute trying to raise money for his work, and just gave one sentence on this. And then it was a immense. There was a call. I mean, the the rumor was there was a call from Bill Clinton for Tony Blair, who then rang his institute up. And the man was persecuted. He was, all his work was conversated. He was sent to Coventry. His, his people weren't allowed to speak to him. Um, he was in a desperate state when I got to know and went up to see him. And, um, you know, this is like the treatment of Vicenco. I mean, what you do, if a scientist got it wrong, you repeat the study and show he's got it wrong. You don't make it impossible to do any future work. This is like yeah. what happened in Russia in the worst possible days. Yeah, um, and that that study has never been repeated. And when I put it to one of our top scientists in the Ministry of Agriculture, he said it would be immoral to repeat that work. Well, I mean that's just an abnegation of science. It does make you wonder what they've got to hide. Um, why would it be immoral to repeat that work? That's how science moves forward. Well, exactly, exactly. And this poor man, I mean, he was in a really bad state, and he um, he had a couple of heart attacks after this. You know, um, so anyway, he eventually recovered and went on to campaign away, but uh, his life was ruined. And he was the world's expert in the thing he researched. He was elected to publish like 243 papers. So he wasn't a fly-by-night scientist. He was a very well-respected scientist. Um, and um, you do wonder if like that happens, what have they got to hide? But I must stress there's no good evidence either way, but there are no good studies either way. And, and you, you wonder, in, a, in an area... Uh, that has this many ramifications. Why wouldn't there be any good studies? Isn't <laughs> that seems rather well? That's odd. right. I think that's going around the world and being eaten by millions of people every day. You would think that those studies would be done before before that happened. Um, and uh, you know, it is it is alarming. So um, that kind of thing is what scared Europe. That was a big push back 
on it. It's a big push by scientific community and others to, um, uh, and by the industry to get Britain to change. But it's possible some of the new GM crops would be would be more beneficial to people. I mean, they could have nutritions built into them which were good for people. They might also, you have to genetically modify things to withstand drought, which have been handy in the United States recently, or flood, that kind of thing. Now, that I can see could be genuinely useful in boosting world food supplies. So there's a yeah, it's a trade-off to consider, but we do need the facts, and then we do need for cost-benefit analysis on behalf of those facts. And for the current crop of GM crops, I believe the cost-benefit analysis says it's just not worth the risk, which what most people have concluded, any risk there might be. On the next generation, there may be a different cost-benefit analysis to be made. I don't know. Well, of course, when you say it's not worth the risk, uh, worth it to whom? Well, one of the things that we have found that uh, – many uh, uh, in the corporate world and in the United States love to do is to um, uh, have the public take the risk while they take the profits. Well, exactly. That, that is what – and business will always seek to do that. I mean, whether it's actually wise, that's another question. And the whole question of ethics and business is a very interesting one, which is opening up increasingly. Um, but um, and a lot of people need to say now that businesses that behave well will actually attract more customers We'll get a more loyal staff. We'll attract better things to work for them. We'll actually be more profitable. But um, that's rather opposite to the ethos that's been practiced for the last years. Yeah. Um, but that's exactly that's exactly right. And um, um, you know, there, I would worry about I would worry about this one. There are those also. That but it's really, really interesting to me that you've had two emails this subject, and both of them are worried about GM food because you know, it's the whole down here is that this has been accepted by people in America very happily and in the United States. And it's clear that opposition is going to rise in the United States. Right? No, I would not say that. I would say that, um, uh, there, first of all, there is some uh, definite determined opposition to GM foods uh, in the environmental community in the United States, and that the rest of the United States, uh, the population of the United States, doesn't have a clue that no. every day they eat GM foods because the industry here has been so good at muzzling uh, any kind of regulation that um, all the laws that we've passed, and there's, there's more of them now that are being introduced to require labeling of GM foods have been killed by industry because they know that once people see genetically modified on a, on, on a label, they won't buy it. Well, you see, that is not a freedom of choice, isn't it? I mean, what they should be doing is to let that happen. And if they're as beneficial as they say they are, than to make the case. I mean, you know, if they're really right, then people would choose to buy them rather than the other way around. But business, as you know, corporations are, are not chartered to make the case. They're chartered to make money, right? <laughs> Making the case is not part of the deal. So Yeah, but they'll make the case fast enough, I think, so they're making money to make the case. <laughs> <laughs> that may or may not be the the way it is, but on, on GM Foods, I, I, um, I go along with, with you that uh, – why should anybody take the risk? You know, just because, just so one or two companies can can make um, can, can make money, doesn't do us well, any good. If we get there's no benefit to anybody except those companies with the current generation. That that's the point. And so I, I quite agree with you. And that's really what, in answer to that second email, is what the European people have decided effectively. Now, was that decision was that made by by the the EU or was that made country by country? Largely made country by country. The EU is deadlocked on it um, every time. The EU works the funny way that the qualified majority you have to get for everything to go by. 
And on all the GM things, they're deadlocked. They have some countries, including the British government, oddly enough, who want to license more and more GM stuff, and some countries that won't, and they can never get a decision. Um, so it's sort of um, by default in the EU, but it's really national governments deciding they're not going to do it um, because of their national concerns, these concerns of their people. Even when it turns out the British government, they would sooner, they would frankly sooner do it, but they know they can't get away with it. And actually the, um, the, um, um, the public, the supermarkets won't do it because they know the public won't buy it. So it's, um, it's as simple as that. They, you know, the supermarkets don't want to get into it either. And so they dropped it sooner than the government banned. Well, let's, um, let's talk about um, art and uh, the environment. I understand that um, the Chartered Institute of Water and Environmental Management is um, doing something with the arts. you want to tell us about that? Yeah, well, these are, these are people who sort of look after all sorts of things, including our sewage works and our water supplies and things. And they are... They have a they're literally a manifesto on on arts and environment, not necessarily people who most expect to do it, um, but you know it shows the interest in it. Um, it's a thing that's come up quite a lot here at the Hay Festival, whether the um, you know should artists get involved. And really, what is quite interesting is actually if you accept half what the scientists say about the world environmental crisis, and I'm not just talking about climate change. I'm talking about you know loss of species, loss of soil desertification cutting down of forests, um, all these big issues, state, state of the oceans. Um, you'd think there'd be a ferment of art around. I mean, art is supposed to reflect what's going on in the world and help us to interpret it. That's what art has always done. And actually, having said that, there's very, very little art on this subject at all. And that's something of a mystery, which people are grappling with why that should be. Well, there were, were, what, three plays. There was The Heretic and The Day After Tomorrow and then Greenland, and all of them... Um weren't too good, from, from what I understand from your writing, they weren't very good. Well, I think the heretic, oddly enough, which is the climate skeptic play, was quite good. It wasn't entirely climate skeptic. It gave both sides. Greenland, which is on the National Theatre, was very poor. The Day After Tomorrow, which is a film I'm sure a lot of people have seen by Roland Emmerich, which was a sort of um, went all over the world, was, you know, in science was all to pot. I mean, there's no way that the, they had the whole sort of North America going to an ice age in three or four days. You know, there's no way that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and um, so, um, you know, it really lacks credibility. Um, not to say some of the scientific community didn't actually get very excited about it and boost the play. I was at one press conference where I got up and I said, things have got to a pretty pass when you've got a journalist here defending the science against the scientists. It <laughs> 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 didn't, didn't please them very much. But... Um, uh, so, yeah, um, that's the problem. And um, Ian McEwan produced a book called Solar, which is better than most things, but it's not thought to be among his best books. So the lack of really good stuff is, um, is, um, is also serious. When you look back to some of the great art that has been, you know, Picasso's Guernica sort of calling attention to the Spanish Civil War or Charles Dickens or Elizabeth Gaskell's work, in Britain and exposing the social conditions of the day, or indeed Uncle Tom's Cabin to go to your part of the woods and, right. and all that, that did in American society. We haven't got that kind of stuff around. Nope, um, And, and um, so one, one of the people I met at another festival this week, the Salisbury Arts Festival, where I chaired a panel, was a guy called Peter Gingold, who runs a thing called Tipping Point, um, which is trying to bring artists and scientists together to meet each other and hope that some science, some good art will, will, will come out of that. And there are a few signs of stuff coming out. 
Um, the one that's caught my attention most obviously is after a whole series of giant bells that have been put around the British coastline at various key places. And so when the tide comes in, they ring out a warning that tides are rising, which is quite nice. I quite like that one. Um, but, you know, it's just not there. That ferment of art is not around. Um, and there was The AIDS crisis did provoke quite a lot of art and literature, but this one hasn't. And um, it makes it difficult to, to get to grips with. It's so amorphous, but it is strange. Yeah. And um, it does concern people. Well, with, at, at that point, with that point, we're going to have to um, to wrap it up because we're out of time. Once again, this has been a delight talking with you, Jeffrey. Great to talk with you, Patrick, again, and good luck. And talk to you next week. I'll, I may be at the Hay Festival. I may have gone home, but I'll be spending most week, most of the week here in Hay. Okay, that's Jeffrey Lean from the London Daily Economist. You can follow uh, Je- Jeffrey at uh, London Daily Telegraph. You can follow Jeffrey at Telegraph. Dot com, actually telegraph.e.uk.com. Uh, so follow Jeffrey Lean. He's the environmental columnist for the London Daily Telegraph. We're going to take a quick break right now, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Ray Bonneville. Chuck and Patrick, and it's Music Friday, Music Friday on the Block Talk Radio Network, on the Cyber Station USA Network, and on our radio affiliates. And I just wanted to uh, give you the uh, the website for uh, Jeffrey Lean. It's telegraph.co.uk, telegraph.co.uk. Well, as I said, this is Music Friday, and we are delighted to have with us a Canadian-born, Austrian-based singer who has been known for his dark, funky vibe and his wonderful, heart-rending music. We're, we're graced today to have Ray Bonneville with us. Hi, Ray. Hello, Patrick. How are you doing, man? We're doing well, and, and you're on tour now, aren't you? Yeah, I left Austin um, uh, four days ago to drive to the East Coast here, and I'm here now. Uh, and, um, yeah, I'm going uh, to be running around uh, the East Coast and up into Canada and over towards the West for the next uh, six, seven weeks or so. Well, let's see. Right now you're, you're at uh, in Preston, Connecticut. You're at the Strawberry uh, Park Bluesgrass Festival. Is that right? Yep, 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 yep. That's, we're going to do that tonight with my friend Louise Taylor. It's a cold bill. I'm touring with uh, Louise for the next uh, ten days. Well, that's going to that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and you're you're planning on going into to to Boston at some point part too, aren't you? Yeah, we're going to play at Passim on the seventh in Cambridge, and uh, I'm going to be in Portland, Maine at Longfellow's um, 
one one Longfellow uh, on the eighth, and then on the ninth we're at the First Encounter Coffee House in Cape Cod in East Ham. Well, for all of our New England listeners, uh, you can go to, um, to to Ray's website. That's uh, raybonneville.com, and his uh, schedule is on there. But let's talk about a little music, Ray. We've been playing cuts from uh, Bad Man's Blood all week in our station breaks. Oh, well, that's great. That's great to hear. Yeah, um, that record uh, came out on the Red House label in uh, August, um, at the end of August uh, in 2011, and... Uh, I've been touring that record uh, ever since, and uh, it's, it's been uh, doing quite Papa well. Said and, uh, to the glass. Well, I, I can see why it's been doing so well, uh, because it is one of the most haunting, um, and uh, it, it's what we call an earworm. It's hard to get out of your head. And let's oh, listen. that's it. That's good to hear. But let's listen to a little piece of it here. All right. Under no moon sky My headlights cut the night On this dark road to nowhere It's just a matter of time. Now that's kind of melancholy. What's the road to nowhere? Does that have anything to do with you personally? <laughs> well, you know, probably. Uh... I'm 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 a kind of a nomad, I guess you might say. I've been I've been moving around all my life, uh, changing cities quite often, and uh, I have logged quite a few miles in my day. And uh, I don't know what that's about. Well, this this song really expresses it. I, I I'd love to hear the characters that you bring up in your songs and the and the melancholy. I told the yeah. took me by surprise I saw the fear in his eyes I just left him I mean that that those words there and the music behind it they create a little movie in my head <laughs> oh good yeah, that's what I'm trying to do you know I when I write I try to sketch you know enough information in the song and the story so that the listener can see it uh, and visualize it you know if I if I put too much detail in the, in, the, in the writing of the song then it's my song but I don't want it to be my song I want it to be the listener's song oh it, it, it's this definitely the listener's song now now are, on this particular cut are you the only musician uh, I am uh, playing the guitar and my foot percussion and there is uh, a, a drummer playing very uh, sparse drums but that that's it Okay, and I remember that foot percussion. I was at a house concert that you you were at at um, you played at in Northern California. I was in the front row. I actually had to hold a mic stand for uh, you. I remember, <laughs> I remember that, Patrick. And, and you had your your foot percussion. Maybe you ought to describe to people what that is because most people don't know what you're talking about. Okay, what that is is a, a couple of pieces of plywood on the floor that are elevated by rubber stoppers so that. Uh, there's air underneath them, and then I put, uh, you know, so, some very small microphones under the, underneath each one, and they're, one is slightly EQ different from the other, so I have kind of a bass, a quasi-bass drum on my right foot, 
and a quasi a snare drum on my left foot, and I I, I alternate my, my feet, you know, and I just kind of play. You know, these are things that my feet would be doing anyway. I mean, you know, that's why I mic'd them originally 30 years ago is uh, I heard my feet on a, on a porch, um, and I said, you know, that's that's part of the music there. That's got to be part of my show. So I started uh, way back way back many years ago to mic, mic my feet. And, and, of course, that allows you to play the guitar, the harmonica, and be percussion at the same time, and it all yeah. works wonderfully well. Oh, thank you, Patrick. Yeah, I, I remember uh, I remember meeting you in uh, California that time. <laughs> My microphone was slipping down, right? Right, right. Yeah. And that's, that's what I love about uh, uh, house concerts is they're really intimate. Let's take a yeah. look at it uh, listen to a slightly different vibe here. Let's uh, listen a little okay. bit to Mississippi. All right. black man song it's it's a song by a guy named Mike Jordan who lived in St. Louis and got killed one night on his way home from a gig and uh, some people gave me his uh, his re- a couple of his records and I, I really liked that song uh, about the Mississippi River rising uh, and it's, it's you know a pretty uh, catchy little thing so I decided to record it well you managed to, to bridge blues folk um Americana and and rhythm and blues all in one song. It's really remarkable how you've done that. Oh, well, thank you, Patrick. Yeah, um, you know those those are strong influences in in my stuff. Um, uh, you know, Southern American music and uh, blues and uh, folk music. Uh, they've been they've been my friends for many years. You know, ever since I was I came to the Boston area uh, from from Quebec, Canada, when I was a boy, just a young boy. And uh, learned how to speak English and started playing guitar in uh, in the sixties. Oh, we got a, an email from one of your your fans here, uh, and and this is from um, from Gary Linden. And Gary Gary is is in uh, New Orleans, and he wants to say, oh, actually, he's asking me, can we play some River John? Since you're going to do songs about rivers. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, we'll yeah, play. A, uh, we'll play some. We'll, don't worry, Gary. We'll play some River John. I wanted to talk a little bit more about Mississippi here. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, the way you play the guitar here, it's it, it's it's edgy. It's deep. It's it sounds like you're using you know 50 gauge strings on it. Uh, this is uh this is fairly remarkable. Uh, well, I, I actually uh, those uh my low E low E is a 60 gauge string. And my uh, pretty pretty heavy strings I use, and uh, allows me to get a lot of low end uh, out of the guitar, and a lot of you know a lot of a lot of breakup, like a slight distortion. Uh, when I recorded that song, I we were running about four four different amplifiers all at once. So that that's on purpose that 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 distortion sound. 
Yeah, that's on purpose, Opsie. Absolutely, yeah. This is a little bit of that. and your voice are so woven together so nicely. The timing is just perfect on it. Did that take a long time uh, to get it just right? Well, no, you know, not really because that's, that's, a, that's something that, that's, you know, kind of like breathing for me. That's, uh, that's a, that guitar and the voice, you know. I mean, I, I kind of do this all the time. So they, uh, the voice, all of the, all of the uh, elements in, in the music that I'm doing solo are, are part of one another, you know. They're none of them are separate, and they all live together like in one in one house. You know? <laughs> and that house is inside <laughs> your head. Huh? Yeah, the house is inside my head. Yeah, <laughs> and in your fingers. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and my feet and my, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, since since we got a request, why don't we play a little bit of River John, and you can tell us. Yeah, okay, sure. Going. Yeah, let's see what's going on with River John here. All right. Boston. Um, he was an old friend, a childhood friend, and he died a few years ago. And I wrote that for his family and his wife and for myself, uh, so that I could think about him whenever I sang it or played it. So, uh, yeah, it is melancholy, and it's uh, you know, in the song, you're not sure if you see him. He's still around, but you're not you're not quite sure if you see him there on the river, you know, because we used to hang out on the river all the time. And which river was this? Well, it was a lot of different rivers, you know. We 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 uh, we used to go to a lot of different rivers and fish and and you know do do what young guys do, you know, uh, drink beer and s- smoke a little stuff and you know all that stuff. Well, uh, it, it it makes me uh, wish that I was on a river now.
Yeah, now that's Gurf. That's my friend Gurf Morlix, who played uh, on quite a few of the songs. He played the bass, he played the guitar, he played the banjo, and he, and he sang with me. And he's a, he's a friend from Austin. A lot of people know him uh, from uh, a lot of different... Uh, he's a producer and a guitar player. He worked with Lucinda Williams and, uh, you know, uh, Ray Wiley Hubbard and many, many, many others. So, so as you uh, as you traveled, uh, do you pick up uh, different people and, and and add them to the act, and or, or or pick up people for recording? Well, you know, I, I I choose people to record with because I like the way they play. You know, I don't I don't ever give them direction. Um, I just I I know about their sensibilities and, and what they you know how they how they approach music, and so you know I. I I've recorded in a lot of different towns, and sometimes I'll make a record in two different cities, like Montreal and uh, Austin, or Toronto and Nashville. And I'll, I'll I'll find a couple of guys that I like, like Richard Bell, uh, who uh, lived in Toronto. I played with him, and Colin Linden, and uh, uh, Tim O'Brien. Lo- lots of different kind of folks that I because what I do is I like to record these songs. Um, Kind of, kind of naked first, and listen, then listen to the songs, and and sort of, kind of ask the songs how they'd like to be dressed. You know, some songs they wanna, they wanna uh, stay home in a t-shirt, and some wanna go out for the evening and wanna wear a suit. So you know, it depends on the, what the song, how what the song wants. You know, I I I don't know what what the thing wants. I I have to ask it. You know. You know, you you sound like uh, uh, sculptors I have known who, who, when you ask them how how they uh, how, how they work, and you said, "Well, I just it's inside the stone, and the stone just tells me how what I have to take away to to get to the." Piece well, you there. know, yeah, it's a lot like that, I suppose. Um, um, uh, you know, because it doesn't matter how I approach it; if that's always what winds up uh, the song telling me what it, how it want what it wants, you know, and the recording is always so different than uh every time you record it it's slightly different so it's it, it's gonna it's gonna give you a different direction or a different it's gonna ask you different things for different things so um, I, i'm a big fan of sparse sparse production and uh, i like to uh, leave a lot of open space in the songs uh, and i like to li- leave a lot of open uh, possibilities for the listener uh, to put their own details in the song and and make it about them, you know. Which is why I can have these great movies in my head. Now, real quick, let me remind our listeners that you're listening to Music Friday. We're part of Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We're on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. And we're talking with Ray Bonneville. We're talking. Uh, t- we're playing songs from his new album, Bad Man's Blood, and. Ray's on tour, and he's on tour on the East Coast, and you can get a schedule of his tour stops at RayBonneville.com. That's R-A-Y-B-O-N-N-E-V-I-L-L-E. We're having, <clears throat> if you're a fan of Ray's, or even if you're not a fan of Ray's, uh, you can call in, 424-675-6806, or you can also email us. And actually, we have an email here from um, a listener who apparently has never heard your music before, thinks it's great and wants to know how you got your start in, in music. Well, uh, you know, uh, when I was about 14 years old, uh, my mom got me a guitar because my my friend, actually, uh, John, the same John that's in the River John, um, he had a guitar and, you know, he was playing some folk songs and I, I love that sound. And he used to bring it into uh, the showers uh, at the school uh, with some other guys 
and uh, there was a lot of reverb there in the showers. So then when there was nobody in the showers, they'd go in and sing in the showers. And, uh, um, and I just sort of fell in love with playing the guitar, and I, I learned, you know, uh, one chord, and eventually, you know, I learned another chord, and, uh, you know, now I'm up to like four. And uh, I just um, I just fell in love with, uh, you know, expressing myself through music and uh, uh, guitars and, you know, harmonicas and I just love that stuff you know well just to be clear you weren't playing the guitar in the shower <laughs> yeah 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 the guitar in the shower uh, uh, uh what I mean is that the 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 stone the the tile would give it a, a reverb you know like uh, like in, at the at the high school like there was these two guys um the sons of uh Frankie Fontaine who used to be on the Jackie Gleason show his sons were at the high school that I was at near Boston, and they they would play the banjos and the guitars in the shower when nobody was in oh. the shower, you know, with no no water running, of course. Oh, okay, all right. Because so I was going to say <laughs> to our our audience, don't try this at home. <laughs> well, let, well, let's no, let, let's take yeah. a, another little turn here while we we think about playing the guitar in the shower and listen to <laughs> a slightly different uh, a song, Sugar and Riley. Okay. They made up and uh, gave me the idea to, to to write a song about that. And Sugar and Riley, I pulled out of the air. But you know, it's funny because I played a show one time, and uh, after I put that record out, and uh, there was a couple in the audience, and they were actually named. Their names were actually Sugar and Riley. And oh my God! I couldn't, be- I couldn't believe that. You know, that was such, such a, I couldn't believe it. I was. Uh, <laughs> I didn't. I couldn't believe they actually existed. Yeah, but those. Uh, that's kind of like about. A, Know, about a fight that you overhear, like through a thin wall. Oh my goodness! Uh, the characters that you come up with are just amazing, particularly, particularly these two. years and 
you know, I'd go see, you know, uh, Snook Siegland and Professor Longhair and uh, so many, many, many others, uh, you know, Earl King and uh, Irma Thomas and all those great people that lived in New Orleans and all those amazing drummers and horn players. And, yeah, um, I just drank all that stuff in. And, uh, and then, you know, when I go out on the road and play, it would slowly begin to come out uh, somehow. I don't understand that whole mystery of influence and how it works, but I sure am grateful to it. Um, uh, yeah, so, you know, I love R&B. I love blues music. I love I love good country music. I like all that stuff that is, you know, simple and, uh, you know, talking straight to the listener, you know. Well, well, well while I'm listening uh, to you, talk and also listen to your music, it occurs to me that, that you create real true-to-life kinds of characters in, in your songs. And, uh-huh. and they're, I mean, they're, they're, they're real. They're, they're, they're people I can see in the movie in my mind. They're, they're people I probably have met. Some of them I can, I can think of I have met. And at the mm-hmm. same time, the style in which you record is also very true to life it's very unfiltered there's not a lot of stuff behind it 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 sounds it sounds like you're right there in the room in front of me now is is that intended well that's what you want uh you know and you have varying degrees of success you know achieving it uh now i've got um i'm i'm i've been around a while but i've i've only i made my first record when i was in my early 40s uh after you know, playing other people's music for 20 years, uh, but, you know, I never played it the way I heard it. I kind of always sort of had my way with it. Uh, um, yeah, um, you know, these characters, they I see them in the shadows. I see them on the edge of society, and I like I like them. I like those people that live in the on the edge, and I, I, I like to write about them, and I like to, uh, you know, sometimes I'll find a couple of, a couple of uh, words that strung together that I like, and I'll start to uh, write a few things around it. And I'm really what I'm trying to do is find out, you know, who who these characters are, and, and what are they doing, and where they where they come from, and how what are they like, and what do they think, are they, you know, all these kinds of things. So um, I, it's never the same from one song to another, but I, I I sure I sure do enjoy the process of developing these, you know, stories and those stories, you know. But well, the way you record it, um, it, it doesn't sound like you're in a studio. Everything you do sounds very live and very stripped down. You, you really match the stories. And, and, I, and you know, we've had lots and lots of uh, musicians on here, and some of them never get out of the studio. Some of them sounds very slick. But I was just just listening to that one. It's almost the sound, the way the guitar notes bounce off the walls. It, it, it almost sounds like you're in a hotel room. And I'm wondering, is is, is did you really work on that, or is this just that the way it is? Well, I mean, I, we work uh, hard on getting a good sound. Like for that, that, those guitars, uh, like I said, they had five, uh, four or five different amplifiers in, in one room. You know, some cl- one clean and one dirtier, and then another one that dirtier than that, and another one really stupidly dirty. <laughs> and uh each have a microphone on them or two microphones, and there's also a couple of microphones in the room. And we're looking for, you know, grit. We're looking for dirt. And so, uh, you know, we want the thing to, to sound like real life, like, like a black and white grainy film, if you will. Well, you, so, you, you pull it off. 
Well, thank you, Patrick. You pull it off very well. Well, well, unfortunately, we're going to get pulled off because uh, it's the end of the hour. So uh, I want to just remind our our listeners, we're talking to to Ray Bonneville, and he's on tour. He's touring with his new album, uh, Bad Man's Blood. And you can go to raybonneville.com to look at that schedule. Ray, we're going to go out with yet another different piece of yours, Ray's Jump, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today. All right, right, Patrick, I just want to mention I am touring with Louise Taylor, who's really a wonderful guitar player and singer from Hawaii, and um, we're going to be at Passim on the 7th, and uh, I'm going to be at One Longfellow on the uh, 8th, and on the 9th we're at the First Encounter Coffee House in Cape Cod at East Ham. Okay, well, uh, all of our uh, East Coast listeners should follow that down. And that's it for the day. That's it for the week. You've been listening to Music Friday, part of Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick from Blog Talk Radio, Cyber Station USA, and our affiliates. Visit the website at fairnessradio.com. Don't forget to visit Ray's website, raybonneville.com. And follow us on Facebook and uh, sign up for our Twitter feed, and we'll see everybody next week. And we're going to go out with Ray's Jump. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on Twitter, and you'll get paid.